Okay, we're in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Again, let me just kind of give you some context where we're at, what we're doing, um, what's this about. So Jonah, some of you are very familiar with the story of Jonah. Some of you maybe have misunderstandings of the story of Jonah. Essentially, God said, Jonah, I need you to go. I need you to go to Nineveh, basically the most wicked city in the world at that time. A city where the Assyrians hated the Jews, is the capital of Assyria, and they're constantly at war and at a battle with the Jewish people. And God's like, go there. Again, that would be like sending a rabbi to Berlin in the mid-1940s or World War II. I mean, you can imagine you're going, there's no way I'm going to Nineveh. So Jonah goes, gets in a boat and literally goes 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. God says, go to Nineveh. And he's like, I'm going to Tarshish. Uh, fun word that I love to say. And you see the picture here. He goes the exact opposite direction. He's running from God. As he's on this boat, a great storm arises. He's sleeping in the boat. The people go, what are you doing? We're dying. We're perishing. Wake up. Call upon your God. And Jonah basically says, just throw me over and the storm will stop. And we saw the idea of substitution. Whether or not it was a great motive, but Jonah says, I will be the substitute. I'll die, you live. I'll die, you live. This is the storyline of the Bible. I'll die, you live. I'll be the substitute for there to be life. So Jonah's thrown into the ocean. And last week, we were in Jonah chapter 2. He's in the belly of the great fish. And it was after three days, then he prayed. Stubborn guy, like many of us. And he prays this beautiful prayer. And it's really like the Psalm of Jonah. And if you're with us, you, you remember this. But he finally has hope again. He's acknowledging how salvation comes from God and God alone. I could never save myself. And it's this beautiful like Psalm, an expression of God. I need you and I have hope in you. And then this, the fish spits him out, and that's where we are today in Jonah chapter 3. So we're going to read this, and here's just a couple ideas. Because when I read Jonah 3, I was like, what is this? Um, here, here's what I see. I'm going to see, and you're, we're going to see, a pathetic sermon, but plus a powerful God equals repentant people. All right, pathetic sermon plus powerful God equals repentant people. That's what I count on every week. Um, but, but pathetic sermon plus powerful God, it equals repentant people. This is so true. Here's a guy who preaches five words, and there's a national revival. Just a revival breaks out, and it's unbelievable what what the Lord does. This is kind of like a reluctant revival, as we'll get into chapter four. Uh, This is a different kind of revival, but it's a revival nonetheless. And so I want to look at Jonah 3, and my heart and prayer for us today is just seeking revival. It's a little different in Jonah's context than the one I'm trying to, I guess, introduce, but how do we be a people that genuinely seek revival. So let's read the story. Jonah chapter 3. We'll read this all the way through, and then uh, we'll look at it. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word uh, came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, 
Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth, God, that you desire all people to repent, to turn from their way, to turn to you. And God, we thank you that you do relent from that punishment, that you, you poured out your punishment on your son Jesus for us. God, we just ask that you would speak to us, that you would move in this place, that God, um, this might be a different kind of revival story, but we just ask for that to happen again. That Lord, you would do it again, that you would move and that you would work in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, here in Jonah chapter three, it's really the largest revival we see numerically in the Bible. It's an incredible revival. Now, this is different from the revival that we saw in the book of Nehemiah. We studied Nehemiah last year, and if you remember with Nehemiah, it was different. It was like beautiful. Nehemiah was heartbroken for the people. He's praying over the people. He's, he's just like fasting for God to do a new work and a new movement, and, and that happens, and there's great revival. This is more of a, a reluctant revival, and it just gets me kind of thinking about this thought of revival. God, God wanted to save. God wanted to restore. God wanted to redeem. Um, if you kind of look throughout church history, that even that word revival, like what is that? Some people call it an awakening. Some people call it a renewal. Like what is revival? And how does this happen? And how does this work? And what would it look like in a community if revival truly broke out? I love what one pastor, his name is D.A. Carson, he, he talks about revival and it just always stuck with me. He was saying, revival is God taking the ordinary things and amplifying it. And he said, God, revival is when God takes something incredibly ordinary in the church and he just intensifies it. So think about this with revival. It's like we all, hopefully, as followers of Jesus, we read the Bible, we pray, we serve, we give, we're a part of like this idea of just like what it means to be part of this community. And he's saying revival is when all of those basics are just intensified. We're like, you're hungry for the word of God. Like you can't get enough of the word of God. Where prayer is something you're giving yourself over to individually as a community. You genuinely believe God's going to move and work. There's expectancy in your prayers. That there's like radical generosity that happens so often in the church when revival happens. It's like, how can we be part of this? That serving happens, evangelism happens, mission happens, going out, not just being safe. He basically says, and please don't miss this church, what is revival? We always say, what, is, what will it look like? It will look like what we're already doing, hopefully, but intensified, but powerful but something where you go, the Spirit of God is on this. God, do this. Do this, Lord. And that was just so, just hearing that was beautiful. You know, if you study revivals just throughout the wor world, like the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, uh, the revival that took place in Wales and Ireland and Korea recently, and there's some incredible revivals you, you can see in East Africa and China, the incredible revivals. And you're kind of, people study it, and like, here's the thing, we can't manipulate it, right? Can, any, can we manipulate God? No. But the idea is, how do we get these, these disciplines, how do we get the basics in order, and we just say, God, come. Like, we, we're laying the foundation and, and spirit fall, and just pour out your, and it, it's something we can't really force, but we can seek, we can call upon, we can cry out, we can say, we want to position ourselves in a way where we experience the power of God, amen? That's what we're, we're praying for, that's what we'd like to see, and it, it can harp, and you know, if it happens in some part of the globe, praise God. 
let it be here. You think about America's last great revival, according to basically church historians, we'll say it happened in the 60s with the Jesus movement in Southern California. That was kind of the last American revival. And it's like, man, we're, we're overdue. <laughs> we're overdue for God to do a work in another way, in a new way, in a renewal way. And that's what we should be praying for and seeking after. You know, there's an article I read uh, of a guy that I might mention once in a while named Tim Keller. Um, but he, he talks about, <laughs> why are you guys laughing? He talks about the 10 marks of, of revival. And I, I want to point this out because this is very interesting. He says, here's three instruments for revival. And th- here's the idea. Um, this, this is just, as he studied this over the years, he's like, here's my conclusion. Here are three instruments God uses for revival. He says, number one is the recovery of the gospel. Recovery of the gospel. We're like the good news of Jesus, the grace of God. You're just, you, you embrace the grace of God. You live in the grace of God. You carry out the grace of God. Your community becomes extremely gracious. It's just the gospel. Like it's the good news of Jesus. It's not about works. It's about grace through faith that leads to works. And it's like, when you recover this, it's like, man, beautiful things happen. Just we have a recovery of the gospel. Next, he says, what you've noticed just throughout church history is corporate prayer. When people are like, we're going to pray, we're going to call upon God, we're going to do prayer walks, we're going to do prayer in houses, we're going to pray. And we just want to invite you into that, and we want to say, whenever we have that, we'd say, please come. I would just love to see 120 people walking down the road praying. I'd love to see a house filled with people praying. Uh, Spurgeon gives his success to ministry. A guy named Charles Spurgeon, who's a f- phenomenal pastor in England, he goes, he goes, want to know the secret of my success? It's my church prays for me. Because that's the secret of my success. He goes, this is what I've always noticed. He goes, it's recovery of the gospel. It's corporate prayer. And then he says, it's creativity. And this one kind of caught me off guard. He studies different movements and goes, for some people, it's like open air preaching. And that was a really new concept. For some people, maybe like Billy Graham and during the, it's like radio and television got out there. You know, for maybe some house churches, there's creative ways to get studies going in house. Like he goes, but creativity is always an essential part of just revival. And I love that because sometimes we downplay this. We forget that God is creator. He makes us in his image, and God's like, I want to use different gifts. It can look differently. We don't have to copy and paste what happened for one generation. We can say, okay, God, use it again. Do it again, whatever this might look like. So he says, here's three instruments for revival. Next, here's what he says. He goes, but there's three parts of revival. So some sort of outcome, here's what it looks like. He goes, nominal church attenders get converted. So when a revival, like, is this happening? Like, how do you know? He goes, people who just nominally attend church, maybe they're sleeping Christians. God, like, tends to wake them up, but they get converted. They get converted. There's like a sense of like, oh my gosh, I need this. This message isn't for someone else. It's for me. That happens. And then it's a similar thing, but he says, sleepy Christians wake up to an immediate sense of God's love and presence. Like I've grown up for this. I believe, I believe the right things. I even try to do good things, but you're like, oh my gosh, the Holy Spirit is here. God is here. And you're, you're woken up to his love, his presence. And then he says, this is what you see just throughout history, is non-believers outside the church are attracted to the Christian community in remarkable numbers. So there's almost this interest for many reasons. What's the message? Why is there love? And why is there actually a difference in the way they treat each other? Why is there, again, extreme generosity? Some that people are like, I'm not used to this. You know, I'm not used to people kind of just being overly not kind to each other, um, and that is something new for them. And he goes, this is what it will look like in some capacity. And so here, here's the thing. We just go, okay, Lord, we, don't, we can't force it, but we just do ask that you would do this. Here's the conclusion of the article. Let me just read this. He says, no one can force a major revival to happen by pushing the right buttons. God is sovereign because he is a God of grace. You can't merit a revival any more than you can merit your salvation. Amen? Yet I have seen Yet I have seen over the years that when we earnestly seek God for his own sake, not for ministry success, and seek to be many cases of personal revival ourselves, positive spiritual dynamics begin to work in the church around us. I believe God has many more revivals up his sleeve before the final ultimate revival. I believe that. The ultimate revival is the coming of Jesus. 
the ultimate revival is when we see, every eye will see him, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But he goes, I believe there's many more revivals up his sleeve. Listen, I, I wonder, and, and just thinking through this, is the issue that we crave maybe even revival more than we crave the presence of God? Maybe we, I, honestly, even for me, I'm like, do I just crave to see some really amazing, more than just God, we just want to know you. We just want to be with you and know you. And through seeking your presence, this just naturally happens. And it's birth from that. And so here's the thing. Um, ne- or Nehemiah's revival and Jonah's revival is completely different. Jonah's revival is a more of a lu- reluctant re- uh, revival, but it's a revival nonetheless. And I still want to look at this. And I still want to talk about this. And I, I would hope that we'd be more of Nehemiah's revival and not like the reluctant Jonah. Like, oh, there's a revival. Dang it. Um, that's kind of what's happening. But let's read it. again. I want to just look at this and walk through this text. So here's the idea. In Jonah chapter 3, here's what we see. All right. Verse 1 is this. We're going to see unrivaled grace. Unrivaled grace. You'll see what I mean in a second. We're going to see an, an uncommon message an uncommon message. Number three, we're going to see unparalleled awakening. There's unparalleled awakening happening that we just read. And then we're going to see an unrelenting God. He relents, but he's unrelenting and is relenting. Anyways, all right. So let's look at the first one. All right, here's the idea. We see unrivaled grace. Jonah 3 verse 1. Let's read it again. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Everyone say the second time. The second time. The second time. That's unbelievable. God's word came to Jonah. He ran from it. A fish had to swallow. It's crazy. And God's like, you're going to get my word again. God did not need to do this. God does not have to do this. I think God in his grace is unrivaled. I think we downplay the grace of God. I don't think we truly understand how amazing gracious and gracious God is. I think that we forget the stories maybe we've heard where Abraham twice tries to deny his wife and say, that's my sister, and yet God still uses him. It's Moses who murders a man, and God's like, I have you to be part of a great movement. It's David who murders a guy and commits adultery, and God's like, I have you to be. It's Rahab who's a prostitute, and God's like, you're gonna be part of the lineage of Jesus. Our God, and it might sound like a cliche statement, but our God is truly a God of second chances and third chances and fourth and fifth. And I think we forget this. I think we can be sometimes harder on ourselves than God even. I think we can even look at ourselves and say, God can never forgive me. God can never, and God's like, now you're ready. It is unbelievable how it's sometimes in God's economy, it's when we're wounded, it's when we sin, it's when we realize we're broken, flawed people. Now God's like, now you're ready. Whenever someone comes to me in ministry and is like, I'm ready. I can take on more. I'm like, oh gosh. Like they need to be, you know, there's something like, no, like there it will be a humbling process. There will be some sort of thing to wake you up. There'll be some sort of thing to make, God uses suffering to make us sympathetic. You see this in many ways. God uses suffering to make us useful. Jonah's just gone through extreme, I mean, we'll talk about what it's like to be, you know, we won't really get into it, but imagine being three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Imagine what that does to you. A lot of people believe Jonah came out bleached, and that's possible with his hair maybe even gone. He probably just looked like a nightmare. Maybe that's why they repented. We don't know. Um, but there's something about this where he's obviously gone through extreme suffering. God's like, now you're ready. Now you're ready. Now you can be used. We do got to understand this. That God uses, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God doesn't always use the obvious. God doesn't always use the one that we're like, oh my gosh, they're good looking, good personality, they're this. That member was Saul. King Saul was the most handsome and he was a you know, head taller than everyone else. And everyone's like, let's make that guy our king. He's a pretty good looking king. And little did they know that God wanted to use a shepherd boy who's just removed from everything. My thing is God does not always use the obvious. I mean, you think about Peter outside of Judas. You think about Peter being probably the most clumsy, least likely to be the leader of the church disciple. The guy who had his foot in his mouth, the guy who's denying and cursing and swearing, I do not know Jesus. He does it three times. It's the guy that Jesus goes to and says three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And God reinstates Peter back into ministry. 
God will so often use the one that we think is unlikely to use. So listen, before you count yourself out, I would say just, do you go to God? Listen, this is not a, let me preface this. This is not an excuse to continue in sin. It's not that. This is not an excuse to, well, I'll just keep sinning. God's just going to keep accepting me. Like, that is not that. Um, the Bible does say in Galatians 5 and Galatians 6, it talks about, hey, you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Jonah sowed to the flesh, he reaped corruption. He reaped some pain from this. But you do, so I want to preface it with that, but we still have a God who says the word of the Lord came to him a second time. Like, I can't, you can't pass over that a second time. He already gave him the message, and he's like, I gotta, I'm going to give you the message again. Maybe a little bit differently. I'm not sure exactly, but he's like, you get it a second time. Um, here's the idea. God uses the defeated to do great things. God will use the defeated to great, do great things. I think sometimes there's this idea where we have to come again, a little bit like last week, but we come to the end of ourselves and we go, okay, God, God's like, now you're ready. Now you're ready to be used. Uh, here's how G.K. Chesterton put it. Great thinker, great scholar. If you can, if you can read his stuff, please try it. It's, it's great. He says, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. Hear that again. How much larger would your life be? How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? You, know you want to get larger? Get smaller. And this is just the, the Bible. This is the kingdom of God. You want to find your life? Lose your life. It's, it's just this constant idea on repeat. Uh, one commentator said, Jonah stands as the great example of human weakness in the chosen instruments of God's hand. Jonah's an example of like, hey, if God, if God can use... Fill in the blank. God can use me. If God can use Jonah, if God can use the donkey, if God can use, fill the, he can use me, and this is what Jonah teaches. So here's the idea. We see unrivaled grace with God. Amen? Now we're going to see an uncommon message, and really an unpopular message. Uh, number two, let's read in verse two. It says, God said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Uh, verse 4, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What a, what a sermon. All right, here's the idea. Um, you're going to see this repeated a few times. A great city, a great city. It said that in chapter 1. A great city, great city, great city. Uh, what does that mean, a great city? There's a few ways you can apply this. We'll put them up here. A great city uh, in history. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, it, we're told that Nimrod, a name you should never name your child with, but Nimrod started uh, the city of Assyria. Or, or sorry, of Nineveh. Uh, he's the one who founded this city. This city is a great city because of its history. It's a very old city. It's dated back to possibly about 4,500 years old. Uh, even at this point, it's a very old city with a lot of roots and a lot of history. It's great in size. Um, people who've done excavations in this area have actually found city walls even up to eight miles long. A city wall eight miles long with indicators that there's about 1,500 towers between, all, between the square itself. I mean, a great city, a large city. It's great in history, in size, in power. Again, it's the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians had a lot of world power at one point. So it's a very powerful city. A great city in sin. Uh, Nahum, the little book of Nahum, you're like, you're quoting Nahum? Yeah, Nahum is basically a book to Nineveh saying, repent, your sin is great. Your sin has gone up before God. This is years later. So we see that Nineveh historically goes back into sin. But that's about 80 years later, most people believe. But it was great in sin. I mean, you, there's actually historians that write about, again, we've talked about that, how they would literally just skin people alive and hang their skin over the wall. They would behead children and women and put them outside of their city walls to just let them know, like, we're not, a, we're not afraid to do anything to anyone. I mean, they're terribly wicked people, and it's a great, God calls it a great city. It's a great, full, you know, great sin city. Uh, and then also it's a great city, and I think here's the idea of people. Just people, what I mean? I don't mean the people are great. I mean there's people in it, and so God loves it. 
It's called a great city, a great city, great city. God, God loves people. Why is God sending Jonah to Nineveh? God loves these wicked, wicked people. I don't want to lose sight of that. I don't know if you've ever like flown into South Florida and you just kind of look at it. And as you're flying in, you're like, wow, South Florida. I wonder what's happening like in that area, in that home. <laughs> like your mind can go there and you go, there's probably a lot of junk going on. But then there's like this, when you look at it, you go, God, you love this city. You love this area. You love South Florida. You love this community. You want to see this community know you and follow you and, and just give their life to you. Like God, you love when you dr- fly over it or look at it. And you get that perspective. You're like, God, this is yours. This is yours. All of the earth is yours. Everything in it. And there's that side where you got to have that perspective because sometimes we can get judgmental and critical and look down upon the city rather than have this great love for the city. When Jesus looked at Jerusalem, what did he do? He, weep, he wept. He wept over, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you, but you were not willing. When Jeremiah looked at the city, he wept. And I think we can maybe mock or belittle or be cynical. And God's like, be broken. Be broken for the city. Be broken for our area. Be broken for our community. It's a great city. And yet Jonah, I think, is a little bit different, right? So here's Jonah's message. And it's debated whether he actually said everything he was supposed to say. It says that now he did gave kind of the word of the Lord. Like maybe he did this. Maybe this was the message. Maybe this was the summary of the message. Uh, maybe he just hit bare minimum. I'm not sure. But if you look at this in verse four, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Um, in Hebrew, it's five words. It's like 40 days and you'll be destroyed. And they're like, and they repent. This is unbelievable. Now, this is what's crazy. This message, by the way, is uncommon. This message is unpopular. It might be incomplete, but this message is uncommon and it's unpopular. It's, it's a message of destruction. It's a message of bad news. If you notice this, he's not like, and by the way, the good news is, Jonah, I think, is actually withholding the good news. I think we can do the opposite. The opposite for us is we want to share the good news, but we don't like sharing the bad news. Um, there's, a side, there's a side of this where you really can learn from, which is we must and need to share the bad news in order for good news to be good news. You know, I remember my mom, she told me the story when she said she got saved in middle school. Her parents were not saved. She came home at like 13 and she's like, mom, I'm saved. I got saved today in school. Like she got saved at like Christian Bible study at, on, at her school. And her mom goes, saved from what? You're a good person. She's like, huh? Like, and she's like, that was the first thing she remembers hearing. Saved from what? You're a good person. See, people need to know uh, we're not just saved from being good. We're saved from a lot. Um, we're saved from hell. We're saved from ourselves. We're saved from damnation. We're saved from something and to something else. But bad news is, is that we're all guilty before God. Bad news is our sin must be judged. One way or another, our sin will be judged either on Jesus on the cross and your belief in him, or you'll sin before God and your sin is judged on you. Um, no one likes the message of bad news. The message of bad news is necessary though for good news to be really good news. Um, I can't really appreciate something until I know how bad maybe it was. Uh, you don't want to eat steak when you already ate steak. Um, you kind of want to be hungry. You know, you don't want water when you're filled with water. You, like, you want to be thirsty. And, and so sometimes that bad news creates that drive for that. And there's something honestly looking at the law of God and going, yeah, we've all sinned. Like, I am guilty of the law of God. I am guilty. Of, I, I, if the things I've done were put on the screen from my past, the thoughts I've had, I would not see you guys next week. If the things you've done, do we get it that like, I'm guilty? Do we get that you're guilty? Do we get that we all need saving? How dare anyone think that this is for someone else? I'm in desperate need for the grace of God. My sin was, needs to be judged, and thank you, God, it was judged on Jesus. That was not judged on me, will not be judged on me because of what Jesus has done. God has judged our sin once, and your belief in him, and guess what? He's not going to judge it twice. But you either have your sin placed on Jesus, you either believe that, or you, and you receive that, or you don't. And so this idea that there's bad news. And, and no one likes to deliver that. You think about a doctor. No doctor's like, I signed up to be a doctor to like, give people bad news. Like, I love that. Like, I love to say, hey, by the way, you got fill in the blank. No one wants to do that. Um, everyone wants to be the doctor that's like, it's a boy. You have good blood pressure. Like, everyone wants to be that doctor. Um, but there's going to be a times where you go, this is, not, this is not good. 
This is going to be difficult. Um, a terrible doctor would withhold the bad news. An evil doctor would withhold the bad news. I don't want to tell them they have cancer, so I'll just let them die. <laughs> like, that's a terrible, evil person. The idea is you have to say, hey, this is going to be some bad news. But good news is there's a cure, and his name is Jesus, and he's paid for your sin. And guess what? Judgment can be overthrown. This judgment can come to an end. Judgment already took place. But Jonah likes to just focus on the bad news because I, I think we'll get into his reasons next week. Um, but we just see that their bad news is necessary still. You know, it's crazy to think this. In Hebrew, like I said, it's five words. Five-word sermon. You're like, oh, I wish this I would preach a five-word sermon. But a five-word sermon. <laughs> and here's the idea. I really, want, I really think this is true. Um, I underestimate how much five words and how far five words can go. When someone opens up to you at work and just going and going and going, and you're like, you say, I'm so sorry, I'm praying for you. Or whatever it might be. Like, what do you mean you're praying? Like, just five words, I wonder, what can do, how can rock someone? It's like, wow, I just, my heart breaks for you, I'll be praying. And you wonder, like, what does that mean? I just wonder what five words can do sometimes. I think sometimes I can downplay it, maybe we can downplay it. I think when God's word is just going out, it works. I'll say this, get God's word out there. Uh, we'll see that they were, I can't believe it worked. When I read the story, I'm like, they repented. Like, come on, again, pathetic sermon plus powerful God equals repentant people. Like, I'm looking at this going, this is unbelievable, but here's the thing, we're just called to get God's word out there. Like, just get it out there. See what happens. Can I tell you results are not up to us? I think I used to feel a lot of pressure. And when I first got saved at like 16, 17, I really started believing in Jesus. I'm like, I really wanted to see results. And, and can I tell you, that's not on me. That's not on you. Our job is to be the one who sows the seed and let God bring the increase. So we don't have to always worry about results. I mean, yes, we should care. We should care for that person to believe and not be like careless. But the result is not up to me. They did not reject me. You know, can I tell you, even when it comes to this, when this was life-changing for me. When I realized that my job at the end of the day and your job, I'm a mailman. <laughs> so I deliver, the, I deliver the mail. I deliver the message. And sometimes people can get like, funny, like, I don't like the mail today. It's like, ah, uh, that's the mail. Sorry. Like, like it's, uh, it's not really up to me. It's not really up to you. I think there's a pressure sometimes when it comes even to maybe preaching or maybe even one-on-one -on -one talking to someone. It's like, well, that was good. That was a good message. That was a bad message. It's like, at the end of the day, I'm just delivering the mail. That's here. My prayer is, God, what is the word you have? Let me just deliver it. Whether it's good or bad, whether people like it or don't like it, I'm a mailman delivering the mail. That's what Jonah's doing. He's just, and can I tell you, when God's word goes out, it really worked. It changed people. It changed lives. It changed eternities. These five words change eternities. And I don't want to downplay this. Guys, this is an uncommon message. This is an unpopular message. 40 days in, ju in judgment. 40, just looking at that, you guys know 40, biblically speaking, speaks of judgment. Uh, Noah, 40, you know, 40, 40 days and 40 nights. You think about this with the Israel wandering 40 days. Think about being in the wilderness, or wandering for 40 years, but despite out the land for 40 days. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. 40, 40, 40 speaks of judgment because the message of judgment is not a popular message. But again, it brings out something, a greater craving for it. What is the solution then? So listen, we have an uncommon message. We have an unpopular message, essentially. But here's what we're going to see next. When that message is preached and preached faithfully in church, we cannot miss this. What happens? Number three is this. Uh, we see an unparalleled awakening. An unparalleled awakening. Look at verse five now. So he just says, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. <laughs> it's like 40 days and fired. It's a terrible tweet. Verse five. So the people of Nineveh believe God. Like, I just, my, I really don't get that. I don't get how salvation works. They, they believe God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. This is not a thought, but this is 
I cannot read that verse and not think of Jesus. Not the fact that Jesus is repenting of sin, but Jesus also laid aside his robes. Jesus stepped down from his throne. Why? So you and I could be robed in his righteousness. So you and I could now be citizens of heaven. I can't read that and not think of, even though this is not a perfect type of Jesus, an anti-type of Jesus who laid aside what he had for us. Verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? There is an unparalleled awakening. In Hebrew, this word is repent is used four times. They repented. They repented. They repented in in sackcloth and ashes. That was supposed to be just a physical representation of what was happening inwardly, meaning this repentance will be an inward transformation, but also an external transformation. You can't just be like, oh, I repent. I'm going to do it again. That's not repentance. Repentance is it changed my internal heart. It changed my external actions, and that's what's happening within them. And it says that it even went up to the king, obviously. The king feels this, and that, you, you know, most kings don't respond this way. Most kings would respond with, whoever's preaching this, where is he? Let's get him. Let's kill him. This king responds differently. I'm not going to get too much into this, but uh, uh, people who study history at this time and kind of a lot of commentators wrote about during this time, there were some plagues and famines, and there was even for them, there maybe, you know, more into omens and signs that there's possibly like a blood moon and different things. So they, they were thinking judgment's coming. It's possible that's true. Maybe it's God was like ripening, like, okay, just have to preach a simple message because I'm already, and maybe that's true. I think God is so often at work and it's like, okay, just be faithful to, to deliver it. God is doing things behind the scenes we can't see that that could possibly be true. But either way, there's a verse that comes to mind, Proverbs 21, 1, it says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it where he wishes. Do we get that? Here's the king. God's like, just preach this message. I have his heart in my hand. I can turn it wherever I wish. This is going back again. So just God is way more sovereign than maybe we give him credit. He's like, I can, I can, I can have the king proclaim this fast. So this unparalleled awakening is happening. People are, he's like, I want your animals too. And some people are like, that is messed up. Why, the anim- why do the animals have to? The idea is like, well, they're going to die anyways in 40 days. So he's like, I want everyone. To, this is actually grace. Because they're going to be dead. All of us be dead. We're going to be overthrown. And then can I tell you, it didn't take 40 days. It took one. Can I tell you the 40 days, 40, it was 40 days of grace. It was 40 days of grace because it wasn't just one day. Hey, you're going to be destroyed now. All right, it's, you have 40 days. And thankfully, I think thankfully, they didn't take all 40 days. Um, there's a verse in 2 Corinthians where the Bible says, today's the day of salvation. Now is the time. I think it's like, if we preach this message, would we take all 40 days? Like, okay, we've got 39 more. Like, would that be our, for they, that was not their attitude. Like we're repenting, we're repenting now. Now let's talk about repentance because there are different kinds of repentance. There is genuine repentance and I believe there is counterfeit or false repentance. And you know this, you've seen this, maybe you've done this, maybe you experienced a genuine repentance, maybe you've experienced someone show you false repentance and that's even more painful. Uh, what you call this for us biblically is attrition and contrition. Here's the idea, we'll put the definitions for you. Uh, here's attrition, it's, it's counterfeit repentance. Attrition is not heartfelt sorrow for wrongdoing, but a selfishly motivated response to potential punishment. It's, oh no, there might be punishment. I repent, and it's not genuine. It doesn't hit your core. You know, the the Bible also calls this worldly sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. It's, I got caught. I don't want consequences. I don't really even agree with what you're saying right now, but I'll repent because that's probably what I should do. 
That is not true repentance. Then there's contrition. This is genuine repentance. It is heartfelt sorrow for offending God and others. It involves not just turning away from disobedience, but also turning toward obedience. It's an external change motivated by an internal change. It's an external change motivated by an internal change. It's when you're confronted with your sin, you go, this is true. I cannot deny this any longer. I cannot put this off any longer. They're not wrong. Why have I been denying it? Why have I been living in it? I've been a part of several meetings over the years where you meet with people and it's like, you just kind of go, can you just say you're right and I'm sorry? With marriages, with relationships, you're like, can you just own, if you own it, there'd be healing? This is what's happening. It seems to be a genuine repentance that says they believed in God, that they're fasting and they don't really know. I don't don't know. I would love to know if Jonah shared more because they're like, perhaps God will relent. They don't even know if God will relent. He's like in verse nine, he's like, and maybe God will relent if we do this the right way. And God relents, we'll see but they don't even know what the outcome will be in this. You see, let me just say this. Repentance is absolutely essential for revival. Repentance is absolutely essential for your healing, for my healing. Repentance is necessary. It is key for us to experience freedom and growth. Without repentance, you probably won't see any of that. There'll probably be no change, no growth. Repentance is necessary. Repentance gets a bad, a bad word sometimes. I think for me, like growing up in Southern California, there was like a lot of street preachers and they like hold up signs and be like, repent! Like for the kingdom of God is here! And you're like, ugh. Like, like kind of scary. Um, I think we kind of have a bad rap. Repent is like a beautiful thing of just like turn to God. Turn to your first love. Turn to the one you're created for. Stop serving counterfeit God. Serve the one true God you're made for. And it's a beautiful thing. It's saying you live for the one you're made for. It's saying that you will find meaning and wholeness and life and satisfaction as you serve the one that, that created you and made you and designed you. It is not some terrifying word that like, oh, preachers don't use. It's a, it's a beautiful word. And we see that the repentance is happening at this moment. P- Peter used this in Acts 3, by the way. Uh, if you remember, Peter healed this lame guy by the temple. People are like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And Peter's like, oh, there's a crowd. I'll just share the gospel. So Peter shares the gospel in Acts 3. And here's what he says. Uh, Acts 3, 19, he said, repent therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you hear that? He goes, repent, be converted. And as you repent, times of refreshing will come from the presence of God. Do you want to be refreshed? He goes, repent. It's crazy how you will not experience that refreshing. You will not experience the presence without repenting. This is a beautiful thing. And you know what we see in the repentance? This is just unparalleled. I mean, we don't, this, this kind of revival across this great city that's happening. Perhaps God will relent. And number four, and I hope you understand this, I want to look at the unrelenting God who relents. All right, uh, verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You're like, it's relenting God. I know he relented from his punishment because he's unrelenting in his grace. God's like, if you turn and believe in me, I'm going to forgive you. It's 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just for, to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is just how God works. People will struggle with this thought theologically because some versions might say, and God repented. It's not that God changes his mind. This was always a part of God's plan. If you repent, I will relent. If you repent of your sin, there won't be judgment. This is not that God's changed his mind. Malachi 3, God says, I am the Lord, I change not. This is not that God's some, you know, all over the place kind of God. God's like, no, this is my plan. There will be judgment, but if you repent, there won't be. And this is what's happening. Listen to this verse. Isaiah knew this. Isaiah 55, here's the verse. Isaiah writes, guys, please listen. 
So good. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. God of the Old Testament is such a wrathful God. Like, listen to this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. If you have breath in your lungs, seek the Lord. If today's the day of salvation, today's the day the Lord has made, seek the Lord while he may be found. As you confess, as you forsake, as you forsake your thoughts, your way, as you return to the Lord, he will have mercy on you. He'll forgive you. He'll abundantly pardon you. And this is what's happening to people who are not the covenantal people of God. This is not, this is not the nation of Israel. It's not the Jews. They've been called to repentance several times. This is the pagan heathen Ninevites. And God says, this still applies to you. Even how far off you are, this still applies to you. You seek me while, while I may be found. I will pardon you. I will forgive you. I'll have mercy on you. This applies to you. This applies to you. If anyone thinks here, I'm too far, I've done too much junk, this applies to you. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, for I am the chiefest of sinners. Listen to this. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. Please listen. Please don't miss this. Why would God ever forgive the Ninevites? Like, honestly, do you know how disgusting they were? I mean, if we really, they were such evil, wicked people. And Paul is like, that was me. This is what God's MO is. He loves to save those who are farthest off. He loves to save the lost, and I'm chief of that, and God will still do that. He goes, I'm a pattern for those who are going to believe. Listen, God still loves to save those who are far from him. And if you think you're not far from him, I would just question that. Like, I'm, I, I desperately need the grace of God. Can I point out the, the verse Jesus said? He goes, he, for, he who is forgiven of much loves much. People think a lot of times, well, I need to do a lot of disgusting things so I can really love much. I need to do a lot of, no, can I tell you, as you get closer and closer to the presence of God, trust me, the light of God's going to reveal a lot of darkness, a lot of motives that are off, a lot of thoughts that are off. As you get closer and closer to God, you know what's going to happen? You're going to go, oh my gosh, I'm forgiven of much. You're like, yeah, and you're loved much. He who's forgiven of much, you will, you will love much. Listen, listen, God loves to save those who are farthest from him, and, and we can't think for a second that's someone else. That's me, that's you, that's the person next to you. We all need this. Listen, sin is running from God. Grace is God's pursuit of us. God did this with Nineveh. Chapter 4 is beginning like, okay, now let's do this with the religious people. So we'll, we'll get to the religious people next week. Um, <laughs> but this is the week where God's like, those of you who are farthest off, I'm, I'm pursuing you. I'm chasing after you. I'll relent, believe, turn, surrender. If you seek me, you'll, I'm, I'll be found. If you call upon me, if you turn from your ways, I will abundantly pardon you. This, and this is such good news. I never wanted to think that this is old news or for someone else or I've heard this before. God, make this new news. Make this, re refresh this news to me, this news I've heard so much that though I am far back then and today and in the future, though I'm far, God, you rescued me. You're rescuing me. You will rescue me. God, there's no one like you. There's absolutely no one like our God who says, I will pursue and pursue and pursue. And when you're bitter, I'll pursue. And when you turn against me, I'll pursue. The book of Jonah shows you and I that God is relentless in his pursuit, that God will like, I'll pursue and get you. I'm going to get you. I love you too much. Listen, today's the day of salvation. Why run? Why, why think, okay, I'll wait 39 more days. I'll wait till my deathbed. I'll wait till this moment. Then I'll take my faith serious. Learn from the Ninevites. Here's the verse. It's Matthew 12, verse 38. Listen to what Jesus said about this in Matthew 12, verse 38. He said, Matthew 12, 41, Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. He's like, the men of Nineveh, they repented. They repented after five words. Me, the son of God, been with you for 33 years. 
You haven't received me. So they're going to be the ones who judge you on judgment day. You and I have a better sermon. You and I have a better message. You guys have lived in high, you and I live in a better time period than the Ninevites. Guess what we have? We have the full gospel. We have the full counsel of God's word. And he goes, you know what? If they can repent to five words, how much more should we? How much more should you and I? Listen, I would say, let's not put this off. Let's learn from them. Let's learn from the Ninevites who go, okay, we're done. We're done running. We're done pursuing. We're done, we're done sinning. God, we relent. We give in to you and your work. Amen. Let us do that. Listen, we're going to pray. We're going to worship some more. We're going to have some leaders up here. If you would like to stop running from God and receive Jesus and the free gift of salvation, do that today. If you'd like to say, God, I give in. I surrender. God, wake me up. I don't want to be a nominal Christian who's sleeping. I don't want to be the person who comes in week in, week out. God, wake me up. I want to take this serious. I want to experience true revival. Take the basic, ordinary things, God, and amplify them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. There is no one, no one like you. God, that you pursue me. You pursue us. You pursue the, the absolute rebellious, which is us, and the absolute religi- religious, which is us. God, that we are both, and we need you. And Jesus, we thank you for this good news. We thank you for the bad news. God, what you've saved us from is unbelievable. That God, you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that your original creation of hell was for Satan and his angels, and yet those who don't receive the good and free gift of salvation in Jesus, that is their ending. And Jesus, we ask that they would repent and turn to you and believe in you because we need that. So Jesus, we just want to sing to you now. We want to worship you now. We want to thank you now. We praise you, Jesus. There's no one like you. Be in this place. Stir hearts in your wonderful name. Amen. Why don't you stand and let's just worship the Lord.